Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, having just read this passage, I think before we proceed, it's important to understand uh, the context of what we're reading. Uh, we need to understand what's happening, what has led up to this particular passage that James has wrote about. And I think particularly, I think it, uh, considering that we're coming to the close of the book of James, uh, it's helpful to look at the wider context of uh, this particular passage. Now, if I look at the wider context of the book of James, we see that the book of James or the letter written by James is written to Jewish Christians who are facing persecution. So these are Jewish Christians who perhaps were in Jerusalem that uh, faced intense persecution. As, and as a result, they've had to flee. And they've had to flee to different parts of the world. Uh, and uh, as a result, they've been dispersed. And he writes this letter to the Jews in Diaspora, or dispersed Jews, Jewish Christians. And, and he starts a letter by encouraging them to be steadfast. Here's a group of people that have really paid the price for their faith. And they need that encouragement. And so James starts this letter in chapter 1 by really encouraging them to keep pressing on in their faith. And he encourages them to be joyful, knowing that you know, if they continue on steadfastly in their faith, they're going to be made perfect and complete, meaning there's going to be a reward. God is going to bless them with eternal life, with the crown of life, as he says in verse 12. And so that's sort of the wider context that James is... Uh, uh, or the context of the people, or the circumstance of the people that James is talking to. But then what you see is in, in James chapter 5, uh, sorry, in James chapter 1 in itself, you start to see, after this sort of section of encouragement, he starts then to deal with some of the issues that are happening among these people. So it's not just that, okay, it's all encouragement, encouragement, but there are some serious problems that are happening in, among these Jewish Christians. And so he spends most of uh, the second half of chapter 1, uh, continuing all the way through to chapter 5, dealing with various issues that are plaguing these churches or these Christians. And he, um, and he basically um, calls them to account. And he basically tells them, look, look you're, you're saying that you're Christians and you're saying you're believing and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, look, your life doesn't seem to be matched what you seem to be proclaiming. And so in an immediate context, of this particular passage in James chapter 5, we're seeing that James is dealing with an issue of rich people. He says that there are rich, wicked people that have embraced the wisdom of the world. We've seen James chapter 5 verses 1 onwards through, through to um, 6, he deals with them. He says, these wicked, rich people, they have borrowed wisdom from the world. And when they borrowed the wisdom of the world, they started thinking like the world. And when they started thinking like the world, they started living like the world. And so what does it look like for these wicked rich people? He says is that um, you know, they, they lived their lives for the sole purpose of selfish pleasure. And they did that at the expense of cheating their workers of their wages. James puts a serious accusation against them and he says, these wicked rich people will face miseries when judgment day comes. And that their silver and their gold or their wealth will be the evidence against them that condemns them. And so, in the immediate context, James is dealing with these rich people that are oppressing the poor people. And then now, he turns his attention to the passage that we just read early this morning. 
or just earlier, where he's actually now addressing the poor people who are suffering in the immediate context, but also the wider context of these suffering Christians or suffering persecution because of their faith. And so for today, as we look at the text um, for this morning, um, just to make it easier, there are four things or four uh, encouragements that uh, James is giving to these uh, suffering Christians. And I like to draw four principles. Firstly, he says, um, he encourages them to look at what they should be doing in verse 7 and 8. Then he talks to them about what they should not be doing. And then thirdly, he takes, uh, asks them to take encouragement from the life of others in verse 10 and 11. And then finally, uh, he asks them to look at God's work in all of this in verse 11. So let's look at our first point. Let's look at uh, what uh, James is talking about in terms of his first encouragement. Let's look at verse 7 and verse 8. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Verse 8, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, James, firstly, is asking them to be patient. Yeah, he's asking them that uh, they have to wait patiently. Now, the word patient is translated from the Greek word called makrothumeo. It sounds like a big word, big word, but there are many words that translate to what we now understand as patience. And this is one of them. And this word particularly relates to patience with regards to people. Now, we see the same word used in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, when Paul uses his word in, word in relation to the patience that we have to have with weak believers in the church. This word is also used in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, where we see Peter using the same word to express the Lord's patience towards man. So what James really is talking about here and asking them to be patient is, really asking them to be patient towards one another. To be patient perhaps to the people that are persecuting or oppressing them. Now what James is asking here is really countercultural. You know, at any given time of society, uh, if people felt oppressed enough, they always rose up in rebellion. You had rebellion during the time of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, if you think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, one of the reasons why uh, Pilate washed his hands clean and allowed the crucifixion to happen because he was afraid of rebellion uprising from the Jews. So uh, what he's asking here for them to do is almost countercultural. Instead of asking them to retaliate and asking them to create problems for their oppressors, instead of asking them to rise up against them, James is asking them to be patient. Now as far as the world is concerned, as far as the unbeliever is concerned, this doesn't make sense. But why is he asking them to be patient? Why is this important? Why is being patient under suffering important? The reason is because being patient is a reflection of the love that we have for God. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that genuine Christian love is characterized by patience. And even here, Paul uses the word macrothumeo. You see, true Christian love is evidenced by the patience that we show to one another, especially when we suffer as a result of injustice and because of others. 
Showing patience is also, in Galatians 5.22, a reflection of the work of the Spirit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. You see, being patient, therefore, is an evidence that God is working in us, that His Spirit is working in us and bearing fruit. It is the evidence of one being a believer. So the call that Paul asked them to be patient really is because it's a reflection of their identity in Christ. Well, you say you believe in Jesus Christ, well, this is how you have to live. You say you identify yourself as a Christian, as a Jewish Christian who believes in Jesus Christ, well, if you say so, be patient. The question is, how do you respond when you feel like you're wrongly dealt with? Does your need for retaliation and self-pity get the better of you? Or do you actually think about displaying Christ by being patient? Do you think of displaying Christ when you suffer and you feel like injustice has been done towards you? James now continues on and explains in um, verse 7 the manner in which they are to be patient. They are to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, I just want to stop here and quickly make a, a, an important observation. You'll see in chapter 5, especially this passage that we're looking at right now, James is making multiple references to the coming of the Lord. You know, in chapter 5, he says, uh, he talks about the miseries. Chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about the miseries that are coming upon you. Um, he says that uh, it'll be... Um, evidence against you and will be eaten and will eat your flesh like fire. He, in, in, uh, in verse 5, he talks about you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In verse 7, we see that the farmer waits, um, in verse 7, we see, he says, until the coming of the Lord. And, and a few other verses that we'll look at later on this morning, we'll talk about the coming of the Lord. Now, when we know that a concept, now we know that if a concept is repeated again and again, that's because it's really important. And so James here is placing an emphasis on the coming of the Lord. Now, um, positively speaking, oh, well, the coming of the Lord signifies two things, right? There's a positive aspect of it and there's a negative aspect of it. Positively speaking, the coming of the Lord is a good thing for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the coming of the Lord acts as a motivator for us to keep striving towards holiness. It's a motivator for us to keep living godly lives. Jesus promised that uh, we would have eternal rest from the suffering from the present world. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ signifies that we will be in a place where there is no more suffering, especially in the context of what we are looking at. There's no more suffering, no more sorrow. The fact that there will be a time when we will have perfect communion with Christ. And in a negative sense, the second coming of the Lord, it acted as a deterrent against worldly living. Positively, it encouraged godly living. And negatively, it deterred worldly living. What does that mean? In the same way that James is warning them about the coming judgment. The coming judgment is a deterrent for us to continue to live in a way that God calls us to live, in a way that honors Him. But for the unbeliever, the coming of Christ spells judgment and damnation. And so here, James is using the 
positive approach, and he's talking about the uh, positive aspects of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. James has already reminded them in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, that for those who uh, are steadfast, those who continue, that they will receive the crown of life. So, and so what he's doing here is, again, he's just reiterating that the way or the time that you have to wait is until the coming of the Lord. And he explains that using an example. What does he say in verse 7? See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. You see, in this example, James is asking them to be, wait patiently for the Lord in the same way that farmers wait for rain. Now, back in those days, uh, I'd imagine that there was no artificial way to um, uh, water their crops. But there's something even more significant for Jewish Christians when, actually, when, when James is referring to this. When he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. For Jewish Christians, it actually triggered something in their mind. It triggered something because it reminded them of the Mosaic covenant that God had with the children of Israel. You see, uh, in Deuteronomy 11, verse 11 to 17, and let's read that, we see um, um, a small part of that covenant that God makes with um, the children of Israel. He says in verse 11, Deuteronomy 11, verse 11, But the land that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 14. He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Verse 16, take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods, and worship them. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly of the good land that the Lord is giving you. So this was the covenant that God made with them. That is, you're going over to a land that is filled with hills and valleys, which means there's no natural way to, oh, sorry, there's no um, um, uh, unnatural way to irrigate the land other than rain. He says, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. And so God gave them that land and God promised that they would receive rain. And he says in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 11, verse 14, he says, He will give the rain fair land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather your grain and your wine and your oil. But it was conditional. Verse 13, if you will indeed obey my commandments. So God had promised the children of Israel rain in the land that they had taken possession of, filled with hills and valleys, because that's the only way they could actually irrigate their crops on the condition that they obeyed his commandments, that they loved him with all their heart and with all their soul. And the flip side of that was that if they didn't, then there would be no rain and the heavens would be shut up and the land will yield no fruit and the ensuing famine would mean 
the decimation of those people. And so when James is quoting this, they very well, these Jewish Christians very well understand this because they were forced to, as, as children, you would be forced to memorize this. They were supposed to memorize this in their hearts. And they knew the agreement that God had with the children of Israel. And so when he's saying, as the farmer waits patiently for this rain, if they did live in disobedience to God, it meant that there was no rain coming. So when he says the farmer waits patiently for the early and the later rains, he's referring to the fact that, yeah, they've lived a life of love and obedience to the Lord. And as a result, God has provided rain for them. It is an indication of their love and devotion to God. You see, the rains that happened, uh, the early rains was in March, uh, in um, October and November, and the later rains were in uh, March and April, basically right before harvest. And if they didn't receive either one of these rains, there was going to be famine and drought. And so it was absolutely uh, critical that they received this rain, which means that, yeah, they had to obey the Lord and love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul. Joel in 2.23, Prophet Joel in two, uh, chapter 2 verse 23 says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication, and has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later, latter rain as before. Meaning that he's praising God because as the children of Israel have lived in their love for the Lord, they've been vindicated, and God has rewarded them with their early and latter rain. So when James is using this example again, he, the, the readers or these Jewish Christians are very well aware of what he's talking about. He's encouraging them to wait patiently till the fruit of their labor is realized. He's asking them to wait patiently with absolute and undivided love and commitment to their Lord. You see, in a positive sense, James here is encouraging them to wait patiently by loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength until the Lord returns to take them home. Now, I think when James refers to the fact that um, uh, he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, I think he's also referring to a reward that's at the end of it. When the Lord comes, that he will reward us with the crown of life, that we will spend eternity with him as his children, that we will have the reward of living a life without pain, without suffering, in perfect, sinless, perfect union with Christ. He's asking them to be patient. Now, in addition to being patient, James is also asking them to establish their hearts. Look at verse 8. He says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, again, he's uh, uh, using the coming of the Lord in a positive sense, and he's saying, establish your hearts. Now, the Greek word for this is, um, is translated appropriately as established, but sometimes it's also uh, translated as strengthening. Now, the word established differs from strengthening because it indicates a sense of permanency. It indicates a, a state of being where nothing can be changed. If you look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2-3, uh, where Paul says, And we send Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, 
that no one be moved by these afflictions. See, Paul's using the, this term of esterizo, uh, um, which means to be established, to basically, uh, he's, he's in reference to Timothy, he's, uh, he's, he's uh, sending Timothy so that they would be established, that they would be established to a point that they won't be moved because of the trials and the tribulations that are happening in their lives or because of the afflictions that they've got. And it is this same term that James is using here. So James is not just asking them to be patient and wait, but he's asking them to be unwavering or to be established in that patience or to be unwavering and established in their commitment to Jesus Christ. You see, as Christians, we often are forgetful people. What this means is that we lose perspectives. And we lose perspective of eternity. And what happens when we lose perspective of eternity? I know I'm certainly guilty of that. And when we lose perspective of eternity, we start to think like the world. We see the small picture. We look at what's right in front of us. We look at the problem that's right in front of us. We have this zeroed in vision under our problems. Which is why James is saying here that even establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. He's trying to help them to see this bigger picture. Don't be moved because the Lord is coming. And the reality is that when we forget about that big picture of the coming of the Lord and we start to focus on the problem in itself and the little picture, then we start to have a different perspective. We start to think in the way that the world thinks. And then we start to think as to why I'm not getting what I want. Why is this happening to me? How many of us are guilty of blaming God when things don't go our way? How many of us are guilty of blaming God when we don't get the desires of our heart? Or more so, how many of us try to take things into our own hands when faced with trials and end up behaving like the world? You see, as Christians, our call under suffering and under trial and under injustice is to remain steadfast in every circumstance. And guess what happens? When we start to be patient and we become steadfast in the suffering, the world will start to see us apart because when we do, when we be patient and when we're steadfast, we stand out. We stand out as people who are not responding like the rest of the world is responding. We stand out in our unwavering commitment to Christ and it is reason for Christ to be glorified. It is reason for the gospel to be proclaimed. So our first encouragement for, uh, from that Paul gives us, uh, sorry, that James gives us today is to be, uh, to be patient in our suffering, to be steadfast, knowing that the Lord is coming. Then he moves on to our, we'll move on to our next point. He, in verse 9, where James basically encourages them to uh, consider what they should not be doing. Okay, so he's explained now what they should be doing, and now he's coming to explain what they shouldn't be. He's using the negative. He's addressed the positive side of things, now he's addressing the negative. He says, look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. James here is warning them against grumbling. 
Now, if you think about it, the, the people that he's addressing, right, uh, they are poor farmers or harvesters or husbandmen and people who worked in the fields who've been robbed of their wages, perhaps, or who are facing persecution because of their faith, who faced injustice in courts because of the affluence of the rich people to, um, to swing justice their way. If you think about it from a worldly perspective, they have every right to complain. They have every right to grumble. Yet James is asking them to not grumble. Now, in some translations, the word grumble is also uh, translated as complain. But in this particular word, it's specifically addressing someone who is verbally complaining. So there is a, some sort of audible noise or voice along with this complaining or this grumbling. So it's sort of like, it's associated with like someone muttering under, under their breath or someone groaning or someone whining. Now this uh, same word is used in Hebrews 13, 11 when uh, it talks about, uh, you know, obeying the leaders within the church. And it says, obey with joy and, and not groaning. It's the same word. So what James is addressing here is a, is a sort of grumbling that these Jewish Christians are doing against one another. Now, uh, just to be clear, I don't think James is prohib prohibiting them from seeking justice. I don't think James is prohibiting them from addressing wrongs if wrongs have been done. But I think the grumbling that James is dealing with right here is a kind of evil speech that is evil and rotten at its heart. This is the kind of speech that the children of Israel did when they grumbled against God and God struck them down. This is the kind of speech that they grumbled against Moses. This is a speech that is constant. It, is, it comes from a heart that is evil. This form of grumbling is bitter. It is resentful. It is harmful. It doesn't build up the body. And James is warning them that they will be judged for this. In James chapter 4, the previous chapter, verse 11, he says, do not speak evil against one another. You see, this form of grumbling is what James is referring to as evil. This sort of a grumbling is an attempt to take the law into our own hands. And James says, they will be judged. The warning is clear that those who practice this form of grumbling will be judged. And when he says judged here, we see the negative usage of the term judged. And that negative usage of the term judged is meant to deter us from sinning. Now just to make it very clear, for a believer, this coming judgment uh, is not whether we uh, are sinned or not sinned. It's not regarding our um, salvation because Christ has paid the price when we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. But for us, it's the account that we have to give as we stand before God and give an account for everything that we said and do. I think that as Christian workers in the workforce, we can easily fall into this trap of grumbling. grumbling. I know I have. You know, when... Uh, uh, you know, when something is done wrong against us, don't get me wrong, he's not saying that if, you know, if someone does injustice against you or if you're suffering, you just stand silently like a doormat and do nothing. I don't think that was James, that's what James is talking about here. 
we have every right to address things if they're wrong. In fact, that's our Christian duty to do when we see injustice and suffering. But what he's talking about here is this constant, constant evil talk against other people. I'm reminded of a worker in my factory who is, uh, who, um, who is constantly talking about how bad work is and how bad management is and how bad the uh, working environment is and how bad people are and how lazy people are. Now he's the best person who's ever worked in that factory. And, and constantly, and 70% of every conversation is that, and I end up getting drained just talking to this guy. But the reality is that I can easily get sucked in that very same thing. Guess what? Because he's actually telling the truth. There's probably truth in what he's saying. And it's so easy for me to get sucked in to say, oh, yeah, I agree with you. And I, I, this thing as well, and this person as well. And before you know it, just like gossip, we don't, if you don't think about it very carefully, and if you're not sensitive to it, we get dragged into it. It feels good to vent, doesn't it? Well, James is saying that that constant form of venting is evil. It doesn't do good. Because as Christians, as we stand apart from this world, we stand for Christ, we are to display ourselves in a way that reflects Christ. Just like Christ is patient, just like Christ is loving, we have to display those very same things. Are you known as someone who is a, a not, not a grumbler in your workplace? If you're treated poorly, would you be known as someone who is quiet and bears with what happens, dealing with the issues, but not constantly bickering and arguing about things? Because the reality is that we represent Christ, and when we do that, we shame the name of Christ. So a call that James asks them here is to not grumble. Moving on to the third point, um, James here is now encouraging them thirdly um, to take encouragement from the life of others, to be encouraged by others. He's asked them to be patient, He's asked them to, uh, to, uh, to be established and to endure. And he's asked them to stop their complaining. Now he's asking them to look at examples. Look at examples in the past, particularly in verse 10 and 11. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, as far as Jewish heritage was concerned, uh, they placed a great emphasis on their forefathers and prophets. You see, in John 8, 52 and 53, the Jews confront Jesus by asking him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? This is their response when Jesus says he was before Abraham. You see, the forefathers and prophets were considered in such a high regard as far as Jews were concerned. And these Jewish Christians very well knew that. And so it is to that high regard that James is appealing. Look at the example of the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Now, as far as prophets were concerned, especially in the Old Testament, they were messengers of God. Basically, the one way to, or once someone explained it to me, is the prophets, um, they had their, behind the backs they had God, and in their front they had people. And they basically told people what God's message to them was. And in the Old Testament, we have an account of multiple prophets. And often, prophets would bring God's word to them. And if you look at the history of the children of Israel, you'd realize that most of the messages that the prophets gave to the children of Israel were messages of uh, condemnation and judgment. Why is that? Because they kept failing and failing and failing and failing and failing. King after king failed. It's quite depressing to read the history of Israel to see that after the time of David and Solomon that there was just failure after failure and then every now and then you see some good king pop up and then there's again failure. As God's people, even they failed miserably. And the prophets often brought the word of condemnation and judgment upon them. And what happened when such things happened? These prophets were persecuted. These prophets were tortured. They were imprisoned. They were put in dungeons and cells. They were killed. And so in this context, these Jewish Christians understand very well the importance of what James is talking about here. These prophets had to pay the price for speaking the truth and for following God. And it is to that example that James is appealing to. He's encouraging them to follow in the footsteps of the prophets who suffered, yet were unwavering in their call from God. Their message from God did not change, regardless of the persecution that they faced. Moving on, the second uh, Second person that he, having dealt, talked about the prophets, he now talks about Job. And he asked them to take encouragement from Job. He said, you have heard the steadfastness of Job. Verse 11. Now, Job remains, as we all know, one of the most um, steadfast and unwavering heroes of faith in, our, in the Bible. In the book of Job, we see a righteous man who loved the Lord who obeyed God, who followed hard after God. And yet we see someone who loses everything. We see a righteous man who had everything, a wealthy man. He loses his children, his animals, his servants, his crops, his house. His suffering reaches a point in Job 2, 7 to 8, where he's actually sitting in a pot of ash and using broken vessels or pieces of vessel to scratch the sores that are on his body. And then you see on one side, he's got a wife who tells him, curse God and die. And on the other side, he's got a bunch of friends who actually mean well, but actually offer him poor counsel. And it is in this situation that we see Job suffering. And what does he do? He doesn't sin against God. I mean, here's a man who lost everything. Everything. He went from being a wealthy, really wealthy person with all the choicest blessings that he could have had to being completely afflicted, completely stricken. If he had a reason to complain, I mean, in, in the worldly sense, he had every right and every reason to complain. And yet he doesn't sin against God. He does have his weak moments, but never is he... Faltering, never is he sinning against God. 
he continues steadfastly before the Lord. And I think this is why, um, you know, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14.20 calls Job as righteous along with Noah and Daniel. Again, these Jewish Christians very well understand the importance of Job and his life. And so it is to this life of Job and his steadfastness before the Lord that James is appealing to, asking them to look at these examples that you have before you. He continues on in verse 11 and he says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Sorry, but uh, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So he's now saying that, well, you've seen the steadfastness of Job. We consider those people like Job and the prophets to be steadfast. Sorry, to be blessed, to remain steadfast, to be blessed. Now the word blessed often is uh, misunderstood uh, in our age, uh, especially. We often use the word blessed to refer to happy events like perhaps getting a job or, or buying a house or uh, you know, getting a promotion. But if you consider the circumstance that these people are in, if you consider the circumstance that Job was in and the prophet, uh, prophets were in, I mean, I don't know how you can look at those trying and suffering circumstances and then say they were blessed. Doesn't make sense. Isn't blessed supposed to be happy? Actually, you see, the biblical concept of blessing, um, while there is happiness in it, it has more to do with the position of a person. It has more to do with the state of being of a person than the circumstances of a person. You see, in Psalm 1, uh, verse 1 through to 4, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So what is the psalmist saying a blessed man here looks like? A blessed man here is someone who does not sin. He does not uh, uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinner or sit in the seat of scoffers. You see, a blessed man is someone who delights in the law of the Lord. A blessed man is someone who meditates on his law day and night, who delights in God. A blessed man, in verse 3, is someone who's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Is someone who's firmly planted and yields that fruit of being firmly planted and of being watered. In all that he does, he prospers. When Jesus preaches his sermon on the mount, uh, he says in Matthew 5, 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what does it mean to be blessed here? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You see, being blessed is not necessarily always about being happy, but it's about a state of being 
of contentment in Christ, a state of being where we are following after the Lord, a state of being where we are firmly planted in Him and that we are bearing fruit, but particularly we are being steadfast in Him. So when James says that these prophets were considered as blessed, it's not because their circumstance was good. It's because they remained steadfast despite the circumstances. They didn't allow the circumstances to dictate their response to God. They didn't allow the circumstances to dictate their faith. They allowed their faith and the position of who they are, their identity of who they are, to dictate how their circumstances turned out to be or how they viewed their circumstances. So to be blessed is to know God and to know what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Now, I don't know the individual circumstance of all of you sitting here, but if you are struggling this morning or experiencing suffering, can I encourage you to look to Christ, as James is saying, to look, look to Christ and look at uh, the sufferings of people that are there in the scripture, uh, page after page throughout the scripture, as a means of encouragement. But additionally, can I also ask that if you're suffering this morning, or just you're suffering generally, that you speak to someone. You see, the reason I say this is because this local body, Grace Community Bible Church, is designed by God in such a way that if one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. You see, when one of us is struggling or when one of us is suffering, it plays a part in all of our lives. We're not called as Christians to live by ourselves in our own little houses and not be part of uh, other believers. We're called to live life together, which means that we share in our joys, we share in our sorrows, and we share in our sufferings. If you are here this morning and there's something that's really burdening your heart or something that you're really struggling with, or perhaps it could be sin in your life, perhaps it could be circumstances uh, in your life, your family, your work. Uh, if there's someone that you can talk to in this church, please come and talk to them or you want to talk to Benoit or myself, we're happy to talk to you and spend time with you. Because that's what it means to be part of the church and the fact that we need each other. We can't do this on our own. We can't remain steadfast on our own. The fact is that we need each other for this. I know we've said this before, but the reason why we keep repeating the fact that we need to be building Christ-centered relationships, even our conversations, the time that we spend after church getting to know one another, the time we spend during the week getting to know one another, not just on a, hi, how's it going, how's things, but how's the weather, and finish up at that, but to go beyond that, to have those conversations that really point our hearts that we are able to share and to get to know what the Lord is doing in our lives. So can I encourage us as a church to continue to do that? Finally, James comes to our, four, our fourth point for today. He, 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 uh, we come to our fourth point for today, uh, in verse 11, where James encourages them to see the purpose of the Lord in suffering. He says in verse, seven, verse 11, um, you, Behold, we consider the blessing, uh, the bless, those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's saying you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James has been asking them to be patient, to be steadfast in their suffering, waiting till the Lord comes. Then he's saying, don't grumble or you'll be judged. And then he's saying, look at all these examples that are there before you. 
and be encouraged. And now he's saying, well, look at what God is doing in the midst of all your suffering. You see, it's quite natural for us as Christians either to forget sometimes, and often, but also to question, where is God in all of our struggles? Why is God allowing the struggle to happen in our life? Or you may have friends that do not know Christ that say, well, if there is a God and he's loving, then why is there suffering in this world? You see, James answers this question by revealing two attributes of God that were evident during the suffering of Job. Firstly, he says that God is compassionate, and secondly, that he is merciful. Now, both these words have a very similar meaning. They both refer to the enormous capacity of God to have compassion and care and love for somebody in their suffering. Now, what that means is that in your trial, in your suffering, that God has not abandoned you. In fact, God is there along with you. But as he says in uh, chapter 1, the reason for suffering is so that we would grow and we would mature, and that we will be steadfast, that we will be perfect and complete. The reason why God allows trials in our life is to allow us to mature and grow. And that is the end goal. It might be hard as we go through it, but the Lord is still gracious. The Lord is still loving He's merciful and he has compassion. But there's another aspect of mercy that I'd like to talk about before we conclude this last point. You see, mercy is not something that God shows us only when we go through suffering or when we've done something wrong and God is showing us mercy. God's, merciful, God's mercy is shown towards us all the time. God never stops being merciful. I want you to think about it, right? As far as a Christian is concerned, we know that um, mercy is basically not receiving what we deserve. We deserve punishment and judgment, but by God's mercy, Christ took that punishment upon himself, and therefore we are free in Christ. But in a wider sense, God's mercy is there in even how he sustains his world. You see, if it was not for God's mercy, we wouldn't wake up this morning. We should never ever feel entitled as though just because I'm human, I'm entitled to my life this morning or to my next breath. The very fact that you're able to have breath in your nostrils is not because God was just blasé about it and he was sitting and relaxing and said, let these people live. It's because God in his mercy actively chose to give you breath, actively chose to give you sight, actively allowed you to walk this morning. It's not something that God had as an afterthought. It's something that God was actively involved in. So to say that God is merciful is that God is merciful in everything. Things that we take so much for granted. What do we do when something goes wrong? Oh, we complain, oh, God is, where is God? What's he doing? And we completely forget that everything else that has happened in life is an act of mercy from God. It is important to remember all the time, constantly, that God is gracious and merciful towards us. And that's evidence of his love for us. Not just as Christians, not, in this, not, not even 
as Christians, we think about his love for us on the cross, but I'm talking about just the common grace that he has for us, the common grace that he has for the wicked and the ungodly in this world and those that do not believe in Jesus Christ. Even to them, he is gracious and merciful and kind and loving. How much more for us? How much more can we look at the mercy of God and be encouraged even in the worst of our trials, knowing that it is actually God who is allowing that to happen. A God who has allowed me to have such a good life knows what he's doing when he allows me to go through this trial. So we are called to thank God for his mercy rather than complain like thankless children because when we do that, we act like the world. So as we conclude today's sermon and I've reached my conclusion, there's four things that we've been looking at that James has been encouraging these believers with. He's encouraging them to be patient and he's encouraging them to be established because the Lord is coming and he's continuing on this way because guess what? Your reward is coming. Then he calls them to not grumble lest they be judged. He calls them to not sin with their tongue and speak evil against their brothers. And thirdly, he says he asks them to look at the example of others. Particularly, he used the example of prophets and Job. Finally, we're called to consider what God is doing in all this and to remind ourselves, even at the worst of circumstances, that God is actually involved in all of this. He's not... He's not missing, he's not hiding, he's not turned away. He's actively involved in this. As I mentioned at the start, James uses the uh, coming of the Lord both in a positive and a negative sense. You see, for those of us as believers, we should be fixing our eyes on that coming future glory that we will be a part of when we will be with God, when there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, where the the struggle that we have with this fallen world and the sin that is there around us will be completely gone. Where we will be able to worship the Lord perfectly. Where there is no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. What a glorious day that's going to be when that happens. And that is the hope that we have. So even when you face trials and you face struggles in your life, Look at the big picture of what God's doing. But in a negative sense, when we talk about the coming of Christ, we talk about him as coming as a judge. You see, the Christ that we see uh, in the Bible, a Christ who came down in this, in the, to this earth in the form of a man and showing us love and grace and mercy, he's not going to show us that when he comes. When he comes again, he's going to come as a righteous judge. You see, if you're here today and you do not know this Christ, if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then what the Bible says is that you've rebelled against God. Just the fact that we don't acknowledge God, we don't acknowledge our maker and our creator, is, is grounds enough for us to be punished. Because the law of God, when he says God is holy, holy, and God is, there's none like him, his standard is perfect. Even breaking the smallest of that standard means eternal death. And guess what? There's none of us that have perfectly obeyed the standard of God. 
But even though we live sinful or we live sinful and rebellious lives against God, God still loves us. God still loves us. Look at how he merciful he is in giving us everything that we need from day to day. But there's something more that he has done. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on this earth. He came, he was born, he lived a perfect life, sinless perfect life, fully God, fully man. And guess what? He humbled himself to a point that he died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And when he did that, all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of the punishment that we deserved, it got taken away from us. It got placed on Christ. And all of the righteousness, all of the perfectness of Christ got placed on us. And so God now sees us as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that has been placed on us now. And so therefore we stand justified before God. See, the Bible is the word of God and the Bible is true. And there is a day of reckoning coming. But the question is, where do you stand? Because the reality is that it could happen any moment. You could just walk out this door and lose your life. You never know that. There is no guarantee that tomorrow is going to be there for you. Salvation is now. I encourage you to speak. If you don't know this Jesus Christ, I encourage you to speak to someone who you've come with or perhaps come and speak to myself or Benoit. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. We'd love to perhaps even explore Christianity with you. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that you have blessed us with. We thank you that you give suffering and trials in our life. Because again, it's a reminder um, of who we are. It's a reminder of this fallen, sinful world that we live in. It's a reminder of the, the devastating consequences of sin. But Lord, it gives us joy because we realize that we are free from sin. We realize that because of what Christ has done, we no longer are under the bondage of sin. And Lord, we take great encouragement knowing, Lord, that one day we will be with you when you take us home to be with you in perfect fellowship with you where there is no sin, no suffering, no death, and no sorrow. And Father, we look forward to that day and we, we want to uh, be encouraged and we want to look forward to that day that was coming, Lord, and, and live therefore in a way that corresponds to it, Lord. Forgive us for the times that we've grumbled Forgive us for the times that we have decided to take things in our own hands and behave like the world instead of being uh, those that reflect Jesus Christ. Forgive us for the times when we have not represented you in a way that honors you. And even in this week, Lord, as we go out into this world, as we deal with the problems that we face, we pray that your spirit would strengthen us, that your word would guide us in living and responding in a way that Christ did. And so we thank you and we give you all the praise and glory. These things we ask in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.